Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory, the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And, the, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure, toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Parshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Miris, Marsena, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and, uh, and the Medes, uh, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before, the, before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed, Throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people." 
May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Esther chapter 1. So I've got good news for you this morning. The men can remain seated. This isn't a women's Bible study uh, in the book of Esther. I know that's kind of the, 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 the way this book is commonly used, but it is uh, the word of God intended for the building up of all people, uh, men and women. Every page of scripture from Genesis to Revelation does that, and we are committed to preaching expositionally here at Main Street, and that includes Esther, this great book of hope and promise in the midst of waiting, especially in times when it seems like God is particularly silent. Did you know that in 10 chapters of Esther, the name God or anything about God is not mentioned one single time? This has caused a lot of problem for folks who've read the book of Esther uh, throughout history uh, because God is not there. A lot of people have struggled with that. Martin Luther, one of those who really struggled with the book of Esther. But from its earliest days, it's been considered a trustworthy book of Jewish history inspired by God and therefore useful to make us complete and equipped for every good work. To give you a little bit of background, Esther takes place in the mid-400s B.C., right in the middle of, you might remember, Nehemiah's great conquest to come out of uh, Babylonian rule and into the land of Jerusalem to rebuild its walls. Uh, you might remember the story, due to Israel's rebellion, God punished Israel. How did he choose to punish Israel? By bringing these pagans, these godless people, the Assyrians, to come in and to pillage them and to make them slaves in Babylon. And they were slaves there in, in Babylon for years and years and years. But then Assyria was finally defeated by a guy named Cyrus, king of Persia. You might have heard his name before. Cyrus. Well, after Cyrus, um, because basically they were, you know, Persia inherited the Jews, um, they were still living in this area, but Cyrus was a little bit more gentle. He wasn't so hard on the Jews like uh, the first guy was. So um, after him came Darius and a few others, uh, but the short of it is the Jews were free to go back to Jerusalem if they wanted to or were able to. Here in Esther's timeline, Ahasuerus is king, and if you go through the history books and see how far Darius or Cyrus was from um, Ahasuerus, it's about 53 years since Persia has taken over this land, 53 years. So the question is, after 53 years, why on earth are there still Jews living in places like Susa? Why are there still Jews living in places like Susa. Maybe a complicated answer, but let me give you three. First, free doesn't mean wealthy. Free doesn't mean wealthy. Getting you and your family back to Jerusalem after living in severe poverty for literally an entire lifetime would not have been easy. And free also doesn't mean free from persecution. Uh, you're still a Jew in Persian territory, which means you don't really belong there. You're in exile. You don't fit in and you don't, you're not treated like a citizen. And then there's this thing called assimilation. We tend to cozy up to wherever we live and make that place home, don't we? You ever go on vacation for like a week or more, if you get to do that, and, and you're kind of like, I, this, I don't want to leave this hotel room, you know? I've kind of made it my home. It's kind of cozy. Uh, I think we, we, in a much larger scale, they had gotten used to living in this Persian land. 
And most importantly, I think the reason that the Jews are still in this place is because God is doing something. God is doing something. You may not see it directly in the text, but boy, is it implied from Genesis to Revelation that God never stops working for the good of his people. Read the end of Isaiah, chapter 49. Even though God has punished Israel, he's not forgotten them forever. He will restore them. He has promised them to come out of this slavery and, and, and to be restored fully to their God. And, and we have proof that God is doing something because we know at the end of this book goes and we know today that the Jews have the great feast of Purim which was established after the salvation that took place through the book of Esther. God was doing something here. God was doing something. We're going to see some marvelous things through this book. We're also going to see some terrible wickedness. We're going to see the tyranny of a king named Ahasuerus. By the way, you're going to get really good at saying that, right? Everybody say with me, Ahasuerus. Not bad, okay. Uh, you're going to get really good at saying that. Uh, we're going to get to see Esther and Mordecai, who don't even come into the book in the first chapter. Uh, we're going to see great faith. This poor Jewish girl do what very few would do. And we're going to see the overarching theme here of God's sovereign rule over all. Because God is not just sovereign over Jerusalem. And God is not just sovereign over Susa. God is sovereign over every tribe and people, every land across the whole globe, from India to Ethiopia. He rules the lowest dust of the earth to the highest stars of heaven. There's no thing in existence that does not follow under God's throne. And that should be particularly encouraging for us as we go through the book of Esther. You might be thinking God's pretty silent in your life right now. God isn't working. God's not really up to much. Maybe you're thinking God's not up to much at Main Street in general, at our church. Why is God so quiet? Well, according to Esther, there is divine purpose in what you're going through and what we're going through. So let's dig into the text here. Uh, we're going to get to meet King Ahasuerus. So yeah, living like a Persian king here. Uh, so we get to meet Ahasuerus with his pomp and his glory. You might know him better from the, the name Artaxerxes from the history books. Same guy. The uh, writer of Esther refers to him as Ahasuerus, so we're going to keep calling him Ahasuerus. But uh, he is, from the history books, Artaxerxes, talking about the same person. What do we know about him? Well, he's king of Persia. He's filthy rich. And he wants people to know that he's the rich king of Persia. He reigned from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. Maybe you need to look at India to Ethiopia on a map, because that's a lot. That's kind of like all of the southern Middle East area and a little bit of Africa. He was like, that's mine, right? I rule it all. And he was over this great empire, what they considered a world empire at that time. He sat on this throne in Susa, where the citadel was located, and he was there for three years, and so he did what any humble king would do after being a king for three years, he threw himself a big party, right? He threw himself a big party. No ordinary party. This was a 180-day party that anybody could come to. The rich, the poor, armies, officials, servants, he wanted everybody to come and get a peek at his royal glory and the splendor of his greatness. But you know, 180 days really isn't enough. 
That's why he had a seven-day after party, after the 180 days of partying, right? Did you catch that? Go, go back and, and read it, 180 days, verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And what was there? Well, there was white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords, a fine linen, silver rods, marble pillars, couches of gold, mosaic pavement made of the mother of pearl. This guy was a big deal. Seven days of feasting in the king's garden. And the only rule there was was that there is no compulsion. Have as much as you want Drink as little as you want. Let each man do as he so desires. And every individual gold and drinking vessel, none of them alike. Have as much as you want. Ahasuerus was the textbook definition of the word lavish. Is that fair? I tried to think of a modern day example and couldn't really find someone quite this close. But I, I will share one example maybe with you in a few moments. I think you get the picture. If you ever come to my house and you see a couch made of gold, you can fire me. I give you full permission to fire me. Okay? I don't even know how that would be comfortable. But uh, one thing I do want you to notice here is all the details that were important to this king. I've heard it said before that when government starts putting rules and regulations regarding the size and shape of bananas at grocery stores that they're allowed to sell, they have the appearance of power but are actually very weak. I think that's what's going on with King Ahasuerus and the seven princes who we're going to meet in a moment. They didn't have any real power. Their control over frivolous details made them look powerful, but they were really trying to cover up weaknesses. Ian Duguid writes a commentary on Esther. He says, we're meant to be impressed and awed by this display of excess and a little revolted by its wastefulness. You're on it, Steve. You got the quote up there. Ian Duguid, yeah. Uh, both impressed and also a little revolted when we read Esther chapter 1. Maybe we can pick on celebrities for a minute. Uh, Mariana uh, told me about a Mariah Carey performance that took place in Dublin, Ireland uh, just last week. Okay, So Mariah Carey, famous singer, whatever, goes to Ireland to perform and she demands the entire floor penthouse of the Royal Albert Hall. And she, these, these are her demands upon arrival. Uh, there must be a carpeted area, uh, one for hair and makeup and the other for living space. And it must have a private bathroom. The temperature in both rooms must be set to 75 degrees. The room is to be furnished with one uh, three-seat couch, one two-seat couch, or two large comfy chairs, plain color, no busy patterns. She also requires one coffee table, three end tables, four tall floor lamps, eight tall leafy plants, two vases of white roses upon arrival. There is to be an eight-foot long table with liners for catering and a small kettle and a mini fridge. And in that fridge, there is to be stocked with 12 one-liter bottles of Fiji water, three bottles of Chardonnay, and one bottle of Opus One Cabernet Sauvignon, which costs 180 pounds per bottle. She also has to have 12 bottles of Coke and Diet Coke, 12 protein drinks, 12 ginger ales, and 12 frights. A cheese and fruit platter is also included, and is, as is a fruit bowl and a tea service for four. Finally, there must be four Joe Malone candles included in the dressing room. 
However, for her backup dancers, they share rooms in which they are provided with fruit, mixed nuts, and sometimes tortilla chips. <laughs> so do you know why this article got so many clicks this week? Because it's particularly impressive as well as revolting. <laughs> right? We don't have to look too far beyond the days of King Ahasuerus to be impressed and revolted at the same time. Uh, many of us in America uh, and beyond our country live this lavish lifestyle uh, that we consider quite strange and, and wasteful. Uh, and by the way, we don't know who wrote Esther. Uh, some maybe say Mordecai because there's a lot of details here. But we don't know who wrote it. The writer's never named. But I think he's a great storyteller, not because he's just given us facts, I think he's got some satire in the way he's writing. He wants us to see that this guy was really full of himself. He really thought something of himself. But he also knows how the story ends. He knows how ridiculous King Ahasuerus was. The picture being painted here is not just of a great king with many possessions and great wealth and power, but a king who is somewhat of a buffoon, doing whatever it takes to make sure people like him and that he looks important. And that satire is made known even more clearly in the way he follows the following situation. But before I go there, let me say one more thing that I think we're supposed to see just from this first few verses. Sometimes it's good to laugh at the governments of earth. Sometimes, you know, we need to go back to Psalm 2 and realize that the one who sits in the heavens is laughing as the nations plot in vain. And sometimes we need to have a good hearty laugh with our God and say the kings of this earth really think they're doing something. They really think that they're in control, but we know that God is in control. He's sovereignly working all things to the glory of his name, the good of his people, even the poor Israelites living in Susa after all this time. We should pray for those in power like Joey did this morning. Sometimes we need to have a good laugh. Sometimes we need to have a good laugh. Our God reigns. Um, number two here. So we've met this, this Persian king. Let's see the first threat to this kingdom and, and his buffoonery truly shows off a little bit here at the end of the party. Verse 9, Queen Vashti, new character, also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehumin, Vista, Harbona, Bikta, and Abakta, Zethar, and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But, verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. And now we've got a threat to the kingdom, a threat to the kingdom. Every king has to have a model queen right next to him, right? I mean, during seven days of feasting, uh, there, was a, there was another feast going on that was just for the women. The queen, his name was Vashti, was in charge of this separate party. Some commentators try to argue that this was normal. I don't think that, it, I don't think that this was normal. Uh, I think that there was some cultural differences between men and women back there that we would think is quite strange today, uh, the degradation of women in general. But when there was great banquets of this kind, it wasn't normal to have women over here and men over here. That wasn't normal in those days. Um, but here we have the king making sure that all the men can come in and do their 
uh, partying, you know, drinking and smoking their cigars without the women getting involved. And I can just make my wife in charge of the women over here, and they can have their own little party, the women that I own. And uh, the text doesn't really read like it was the queen's idea to do this. kind of reads like a Ahasuerus was in control of this whole thing. Well, two parties going on. What happens on the seventh day? The men have spent seven days feasting, drinking, all you can eat, party of the century. And the king remembers that there's a harem full of women next door. Oh, yeah. Maybe I can get my wife to come out here and charm my guests with her beauty, and they'll think even more of how great and powerful I am. Need I remind you that his heart was merry with wine? I don't know if he was thinking this through. Mehuman, Vista, all you eunuchs, go get the queen, bring her before her king. What's her response? Vashti says, No. No thanks. Not interested. I'm not going to go out there and be your trophy wife. You're, you're, you're something to hang on your shoulder. That, I'm not into that. With this refusal, the king became enraged and anger burned within him. Now, I'll remind you once more that seven days of drinking will create some problems. And so this is where the writer's satire comes into play because the king goes from this great wise ruler full of power ruling for three years to now he's just kind of like a drunken playboy mad that he didn't get his way this is the king the world king ruling from Ethiopia to India uh, India to Ethiopia but his power is really just a facade he even calls in his seven helpers seven dwarves no they're seven princes right his seven princes what do I do I don't know what to do he has no idea what's going on. And the first question he asks to these seven wise men, he says, what does the law say? He doesn't even know what his own law is. What does the law say? What, what should we do? What happens when the queen disobeys her king? If the, if the king didn't know, you'd think with his great pomp and glory, he could just decide right then and there what should happen to her. But he doesn't. He gets these seven princes to come and help in verse 16 in 17, Mimukin comes up with this great theory. Mimukin says in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in, uh, who are in all the provinces of King Hazarus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing him to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Hazarus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Horrors. <laughs> Horrors. This offense is truly unacceptable, a danger to the empire. They are now fearing the great, the great female Persian revolt of the century. And it really escalated quickly, didn't it? They are, they are quite scared. She has not only wronged the king, she's wronged the whole empire. Now women will rise up against their own households and, and the men. Um, they're supposed to have control over them and Queen Vashti, well, she didn't put up with a Hazarus, and they're going to they're gonna say they don't have to put up with their husbands, and if they don't do something about this, there's going to be wrath and contempt in plenty. A simple mouse has squeaked with a no, and the entire Persian kingdom is flustered, has no idea what to do. They're scrambling together like chickens in a slaughterhouse, trying to find a solution. It's hard to live in a world 
where wisdom and power are so often disconnected. Wisdom and power. Got the quote on the screen here. When power and wisdom are disconnected, people get hurt. When power and wisdom are disconnected, people get hurt. There are a lot of people who have a whole lot of authority and love to bang their gavel, but have no idea what they're doing or how to rule well. Maybe you see this in your workplace. Maybe you see this in your current job or other jobs you've worked. You're going to see this in different facets of our own government system and in different governments across the globe. You see it in the domineering husband who believes his wife is truly an ornament for his arm, a mere caretaker for his offspring. When power and wisdom are separated, people get hurt. I don't want to get too far off the text, but one way I think this can apply in our day and age is, is something called church hurt. You guys have all heard of church hurt, I'm sure. And, you know, one reason I think why church hurt is one of the worst kinds of hurt is because power and wisdom are usually disconnected when it happens. Perhaps the congregation has power, but no knowledge of Scripture or a healthy relationship with Jesus. They overrun every pastor they ever have. Perhaps the pastor has power, but he's a fool, seeking to please man and earn an easy wage and a good following. Perhaps it's more of an internal issue of division, one side believing they have great wisdom and know something the other side has not yet discovered. And because they believe that, they ignore whoever is getting hurt by their actions because they believe they are right. This is why people never come back. Because when wisdom and power are disconnected, you end up with a laughable chicken fight in which nobody wins and everybody goes home bruised and broken. I don't know about you, but I think Jesus intends more for his church, for his people. I'm reading a book right now called uh, Why We Love the Church by Kevin DeYoung. It's now in the vestibule, if you're interested, as a pastoral recommendation. He gives several examples on how people critique the bride of Christ. And I'm going to read many of them and hope that at least one of them convicts you. Does that sound good? Here is what he says. They bemoan the overprogrammed church, but then think of a hundred complex, resource-hungry things that the church should be doing. They don't like the church because it's too hierarchical, but they hate it when it has poor leadership. They wish the church would be more diverse, but then leave to meet in a coffee shop with other well-educated 30-somethings who are into film festivals and NPR. They want more of a family spirit, but too much family, and they'll complain the church is inbred. They want the church to know that its reputation with outsiders is terrible, but then are critical when the church is too concerned with appearances. They chide the church for not doing more to address social problems, but then complain when the church gets too political. They want church unity and decry all our denominations, but fail to see the irony in the fact that they have left to do their own thing because they can't find a single church to satisfy them. They are critical of the lack of community in church and then want, to see, and then want services that allow for individualized worship experiences. They want leaders with vision, but don't want anyone to tell them what to do or how to think. They want a church where people really know each other and care for each other, but then they complain that the church today is an isolated country club only interested in catering to its own members. They want to be connected with history but are sick of the same prayers and same style every week. They call for not judging the spiritual path of other believers who are dedicated to pleasing God and blessing people, 
and then they blast the traditional church in the harshest, most unflattering terms. In other words, they'd like to have their cake and eat it too. This is what happens when power and wisdom are separate. And let me give you one more piece of the puzzle here, this next slide. What happens when they're together? When wisdom and power come together, something beautiful happens. Something called humility. We're going to see that tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you come back to Sunday night service tonight. If you're struggling with humility, check the abuse of your power and what kind of wisdom you're pursuing. If you're pursuing anything other than the wisdom of God, which looks like folly to the world, then you're likely to be puffed up with pride. And when you're puffed up with pride, you're likely to use whatever power you have to hurt people rather than to follow Jesus. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who freely gives. And if I could ask, just put one more little sub-point in here. I know we got to keep moving. But maybe you shouldn't go to people like Mamukin, who are just going to tell you what, what you want to hear. Who are just going to appease your desire for, for power and say, you're right, you're right, you're right. Don't go to more dumb chickens to gain wisdom. Go to people who are going to tell you what you don't want to hear. Go to people who are going to tell you the truth. We're going to say, I see a pride issue here. What kind of wisdom are you pursuing, brother? I don't see a lot of humility in this conversation. We need to get into the habit of liking those people who tell us the truth and help us maintain unity more than the dumb chickens. Finally, what are they going to do with Queen Vashti and her refusal? Threat annulled here. Verse 19. Here is their final decision. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. Okay, king, hear me out. Here, here's what I think we should do. If it pleases you, let's write up a law, not only with the Persians, but also with the Medes. And we're going to do it in a way that it's impossible that anybody could repeal it. Let's make sure that Queen Vashti, by the way, he just says Vashti. He doesn't call her queen when he's making this new law. Vashti is never again to come before the queen, the king. She's banished forever from his presence. You know, that's not really enough to show them that we mean business. Not only is she never to come before the king again, she's going to be replaced by someone better. Her royal position is going to be given away to someone who really knows how to please the king. Let this law be proclaimed to all, every province, high and low alike. Their solution is to get rid of the evidence. Find a replacement. Find another queen. And while we you know, here see these ruthless cowards making new laws and banishing the very queen to protect their precious glory, we see in the background the true king and sovereign one. Using the joke of a polity, they are to make room for a replacement. Not just any replacement, but who would be the one to replace Queen Vashti? But a young Jewish girl named Esther who would be used by God to usher in redemption 
for his people. The king makes his decree. They write letters to every province saying every man should be master in his own household. They banish Vashti. They begin their search for a better queen. And by God's sovereign plan, they're going to hit the jackpot. They will pick Esther. You know how the story goes. For them, the threat has been annulled. For God, the king who laughs in the heavens, he was preparing a feast of his own for the Jews, which would become to know as the Feast of Purim. The first thing we need to see here from Esther, chapter 1, is that even though we can't always see God at work, that doesn't mean he isn't doing anything. This ridiculous 180-day plus 7-day party would not have mattered at all to the Jews of that day. What does that have to do with them? Many of them probably didn't even know what was going on. It had nothing to do with their lives. And yet God was using ordinary, everyday works of pagans to bring about something amazing that would be recorded in Scripture forever. Sometimes we have to wait and see what God is doing. Oh, waiting is hard, I know. We must wait. Perhaps your mind is set on seeing something extravagant and miraculous. You want to see that type of working in your life. But God's work is not always superhero, come to save the day kind of work. Most of the time, it's a quiet faithfulness to his promises in the seemingly ordinary providences of everyday life. And he uses those everyday means to make us more like his son, to make us more like Jesus. You might feel like he's silent. I'm sure those Jews in Susa felt like God was silent. But wait on the Lord. Put your trust in Him. Psalm 121 verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor, nor slumber. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That promise is yours if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we shouldn't fear foolish leaders like a hazard. We shouldn't fear foolish leaders. In fact, it's good not to take the glory and power of any leader in this world too seriously. <laughs> Instead of getting angry next time you're watching Fox, CNN, NBC or whatever your news channel choice is, instead of getting mad and throwing the remote at the TV, it's probably a good idea to laugh and to think of the one who's truly in control, the one who holds all things in his hands. Have a good, hearty laugh with the Lord when you see fools called leaders showing their high ends. That's what our Father does. Don't fear the 2020 presidential election. Don't fear your boss at work. Don't fear those who have a lot of money and power. Our society loves to elevate trivial things. Many of you try to talk to me about the news, and I usually have no idea what's going on. Sometimes, <laughs> there's a big laugh back there. Sometimes I should know what's going on, but most of the time I don't. It's usually temporary, trivial glory that gets eyes stuck to TV sets. 
And I know that's true because there are entire channels devoted to things like infomercials and selling kitchen gadgets. What shall it profit a man if he gains a golden couch and mother-of-pearl pavements and yet loses his soul? Learn to laugh at people who live their lives like this. And when you, when you catch your own heart trying to live your life like this, learn to laugh at yourself and come back to the wisdom of Jesus. It says, my treasure's in heaven, not on earth. And finally, most importantly, we get the joy in the book of Esther of comparing the Persian kingdom with God's kingdom. The kingdom of Ahasuerus is a kingdom of buffoons and chauvinists who love their own glory. In the Persian kingdom, a party is thrown for the glory of a man, and the king's bride is made a spectacle for drunkards to ogle over. And if the queen is unwilling to leave the harem to go to the drunkard's party, she gets banished and replaced. But the kingdom of God is far superior. God has his own banquet that he's throwing. And it's not just 180 days. It's forever. It's an eternal banquet. And this banquet is not to boast in the pomp and glory of man, but of the great love and holiness of Jesus Christ, the true king. He's the king honored at this banquet. And he also has a bride. He also has a bride. He doesn't use this bride for abuse and abandonment, but she is invited front and center so that, she can, so that he can lavish his grace and mercy on her. His bride is the church and he washes her with his own blood and gives her a righteous robe to wear to this banquet and he never leaves her. And he never forsakes her. In fact, he says, banish me. Save the bride. Banish me. Save the bride at this banquet. Our groom is not a hazardous our groom is Jesus, and he beckons us to join him at his feast, full of love and sacrifice, knowing that your sin deserves death and hell and judgment and wrath, and he willingly takes that upon himself, dying the death we deserve, so that we can be presented holy and blameless at the king's banquet. Who would want a husband like a hazardous? Who wouldn't want a groom like Jesus? who woos us to himself at his own self-sacrifice. But I must warn you, if you reject this gospel, this invitation to the Father's feast, you will be banished like Queen Vashti. He loves his bride. He woos her. He invites her. But there is a, a warning that those of his bride who do not know him and are not covered with his blood, must be banished, must be rejected at the entryway to this banquet. Your sin will remain on your own head. The perfect judgment of God will sentence you to forever hell. I promise you that this king is good and his kingdom is forever. He teaches husbands how to love their wives, full of self-sacrifice and joyful willingness to lay down their lives for their spouses. He teaches us how to flee temporal, material things and cling to the things of God, which are of eternal value. He teaches us how to laugh at the calamities of earthly thrones 
because he holds all things in his hand. But most of all, family, for those who believe, he washes us with his own blood and has prepared a feast for his bride and a white robe that makes us righteous to enter the banquet forever and ever. So let's look forward to that feast this week as exiles on this earth. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.